2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm Hudson Belk. I'm part of our leadership team here at uh, North Cross Church. I'm really thankful um, for the opportunity to fill in today and to preach God's word. And as we just heard Ephesians 2 um, read, I want to start off by just asking what stood out to you in this passage? Such a rich passage with so much that we can get from it. But what stood out? Because when you leave here today, I hope that you can leave here saying, but God, but God, thanks be to God for his immeasurable kindness towards me. But God, those are some of the most powerful words in our passage uh, this morning, and those are some of the most powerful words in all of scripture. But God, but God would make each person here in Christ a living, walking miracle. Last week in Sunday school, Dean Whitehill was teaching, and he jokingly said that he was going to start a band, uh, a Motown band called Sid and the Walking Miracles. But Sid did quickly uh, correct him and said, no, it's Jesus and the Walking Miracles. And that actually is indeed who we are this morning. We're here to worship Jesus who has made us walking uh, miracles. So, I don't have, we don't, I don't, we don't have a Motown band for you today, but I hope when you leave today that you will know God's kindness and knowing that you are a walking miracle. Before we jump into the passage, let's go once more to the Lord in prayer. Father, I do pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe, that we might see the work you have done on our behalf, Lord that we would be at all of you and your kindness to make us walking miracles. So may we see you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. I do want to start off, once again, if you've heard me preach before, you've probably heard a Clemson example. I'm going to have to give one more Clemson illustration uh, this morning. And this is one of the scarier, um, but also the, one of the most glorious moments in my Clemson fandom. It's silly, it's ridiculous, but it's true. In college, I actually had the privilege of uh, standing on the sidelines for a Clemson-South Carolina game, and after we beat South Carolina, um, I ran across the field to try to find one of my former high school teammates who played for South Carolina, but as I was running across the field, all of a sudden, um, I was swarmed by Clemson fans and students as the students uh, rushed the field and we're going for the goalpost. But very quickly, it became a scary situation as all the cops 
were surrounding the goalposts, and there began to be a lot of pushing and shoving, and people were pressing in more and more on me, and people were beginning to get trampled. And I know one cop actually fell and broke his collarbone. It was getting very intense, and I was way away from the field goal post, but all of a sudden, these great surges were taking place, and there was a big surge, and I ended up right under the field goal post. And these two big old guys looked down and said, hey, throw the little man up. And without doing anything, without saying anything, I found myself getting lifted up as other people are getting trampled all around and thrown up on the goalpost. And so there I sat on top of the goalpost and the crowd erupts. Yeah, take down the goalpost. And there I was in all my glory thinking, this is great. Um, and I went from being scared to up there. And it's ridiculous, but I don't know why, but I told my mom later that day, oh, I just checked off a bucket list item for my life. I don't know if that says anything about me or anything. Pretty ridiculous. But that glory only lasted maybe a minute before the pepper spray began to get sprayed in my face and a billy club whack sent me falling to the ground to get doused with more pepper spray and think I literally was going to die. Um, but I do have not only the memory, but I have an, an item to commemorate it. One of my friends ended up with the goalpost once it was knocked down and taken on campus, and he began to saw it up and to sell it to different students on campus. And he said, for my, for my great moment, he wanted to give me a piece of the goalpost. So I still have a piece. I actually thought about bringing it in, but I left it at home. But in that, when I look at that goalpost that just sits in our garage, it's a memory of my scariest moment on uh, Clemson's campus and being raised to Clemson glory, which is ridiculous and, um, yeah, quite an interesting story. But in our, in our passage this morning, Paul gives a greater contrast um, and one, one that's much more essential for us to understand that changes our life. He gives us a picture of the depths of our hopelessness of our spiritual state, but the heights of the Christian's reality. And he really wants us to see this contrast. Or another way to say it, he gives us a picture of the deepest, darkest valley of our spiritual condition, but then shows us the mountaintop of glory of God's love and grace and kindness towards us. That God's immeasurable kindness is displayed in making his children walking miracles. And that's indeed who we are. And so our passage is just going to look at the first, uh, the outline of our passage. The first three verses, we'll look at, at the, the valley of, our, of death, of our spiritual condition. The next four verses, four through six, we'll look at the mountaintop of how we've been raised with Christ. And then verse seven, God's kindness in making us uh, walking uh, miracles. And so in our passage this morning, Paul sets out right at the beginning and says, this is your diagnosis. This is your spiritual condition uh, in and of yourself for all of mankind. And he gets right to the point. And as we know, if we've, we've all been to the doctor, a good diagnosis is really important. I remember just before COVID, um, my family, we went down to Florida and my second daughter, Emma, quickly began, uh, as we got down there, started feeling sick and more and more lethargic. Uh, and it became pretty apparent that she must have the flu. But as we were returning home, my wife, Catherine, who's a nurse practitioner, began to see signs that, hey, this might be much more than the flu. 
And she had concerns that Emma could be having appendicitis. And so once we got home, Catherine took Emma to the emergency room and they did tests and they assured Catherine, hey, it's just the flu, go home, rest, she'll be okay. But Catherine, seeing these signs, insisted, no, I want you to do further tests. I think she's having appendicitis. They didn't think so, but they obliged and did the test. And sure enough, Emma was having appendicitis. Fortunately, that night we were able to go in and have surgery the next day, remove the appendix, and really avoided what could have been a very uh, bad uh, situation. And Paul here goes straight to the point. Here's the diagnosis. Here's your spiritual condition. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. As we think about man's condition before God, there's a lot of different ideas and thoughts and views on that. One view is that, hey, man's pretty good. We are, we are good before God. We're innately good. We're only negatively affected because of the bad things in society around us. So eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, um, you know, avoid bad things, and live the good life. Another view might just say, hey, that we, uh, hey, uh, you know, we're human. We make errors, but with good discipline and good guidance, um, you'll be okay. Others with a more realistic view uh, look at man's condition before God and say, yeah, you are desperately sick in need of saving and you just need to reach out for help. You need, you are, you are drowning in the sea. Just reach out to that life um, raft and you'll be saved. And I know there's a lot of different metaphors we can use for our lostness with, without Christ, but Paul here, I want to make clear, he's not using a metaphor. He's being very clear and literal. We are all spiritually dead without Christ. No finding our way, no reaching out for a life raft. We are hopeless. And I do want to pause. That's what Paul teaches. And there's all kinds of questions that come to our mind with that. And I can't um, address all those in, in this and uh, couldn't. But I do want uh, to at least answer one question. And you might be asking, well, how can someone who is really spiritual be dead? What is Paul saying? Or don't people do a lot of good things? How can you call them spiritually dead before God? And I do want to be clear, the Bible's teaching is not that we're unable, that people that don't know Christ aren't able of any generic general good in society. Um, that is not what Paul's saying. People are creating the image of God and have great dignity as image bearers of God. And we're not as bad as we could be. That God does have common grace that we aren't as bad as we could be. But what Paul is teaching is this theological doctrine called total depravity. When he, he's saying that we're dead, that the effects of sin, that all of our faculties, our mind, our emotions, our will, even our ability to choose are all tainted by sin. There's no part of us that sin hasn't touched because of the fall. And thus, we are naturally bent inward towards self and away from God. That is our natural bend because we live consistent with our nature. And our nature is that we are sinners. So we sin because we're sinners. And that's true for each and every one of us. And we don't have the resources in life that we were created for. We were created for God. And without God, we are separated from the one we were created for. And in our spiritual deadness, we don't have his presence, his favor, his love, his forgiveness, and the rich inheritance of eternal life. And so I do kindly want to ask, just in this moment in the sermon, 
if you don't know Christ, if you haven't been made alive to him, where do you go when life doesn't work? Or another way to say, where do you go to find love and peace, hope and forgiveness that every soul needs? In becoming alive to God and in knowing him, we find hope in the face of death, grace in the face of our guilt. We find purpose in the face of futility and love in a world of indifference. Apart from Christ, Paul makes it clear here that we're dead and unable to save ourselves. And he also says, not only are we dead, but he builds on that. And he says, we're dead, but we're also enslaved. And often we naively or happily just follow this enslavement, just thinking, hey, this is just who I am. This is just how the world is. And this must just be true. Not realizing that we're buying into a lie, that we are being controlled, um, and it's not for our good. Another time when I was in Florida, this is back in my college years, I was returning from Cocoa Beach, going up I-95, and I was happy as could be, listening to one of my favorite CDs, and I went through Jacksonville, continuing on, and I began to think, man, Georgia is a lot further from Jacksonville than I thought. I was happy as can be just following the route along when all of a sudden I saw the welcome to Tallahassee sign and realized, hmm, I am not headed to the Carolinas like I thought I was. Um, and then I quickly had to turn around and was late for the wedding rehearsal that I was headed to. But I was happy as could be just thinking, this just must be the way it is. I guess it's a lot longer uh, to Georgia from Jacksonville than I thought, but totally on the wrong cor- course. And Paul in our passage says, not only are you dead, but you're enslaved to the world, following its course, following its value system. And he says we're enslaved not only to the world, but to the devil who leads us in rebellion and disobedience and actually blinds us to the gospel, blinds us to the truth about God. And then third, we're enslaved to our own flesh, living for our own selfish passions and desires. And so Paul makes it very clear that, hey, this is how bad the the valley of death is. You need to realize our natural state. That you, your state is that you're dead. Your practice is that you're enslaved. And your status is you're condemned. That by nature we're children of wrath because we have rebelled against a good, righteous, and loving God. We stand condemned before him. And we can't minimize this. If we're going to get how amazing God's grace is, his sheer grace, we must understand the diagnosis that we are dead, enslaved, and condemned. But God, but God, but God, but God, that is the resounding uh, cry of this passage. But God has acted when we were in that state. But God, when we were dead, but God made us alive. When we were hopeless, God, but God raised us up. When we were overcome by evil and temptation and guilt, but God has seated us with him in the heavenly places. From the pit of the valley of spiritual deadness, we've been raised to the mountain of glory. And that's what God has done for us. And I love how Scotty Smith says what God has done in this passage for us. He said that God loved us, as Paul said, when we were dead in our trespasses, not when we demonstrated potential. So while we were in the valley, we didn't start showing signs of potential by which God acted on our behalf. Or we weren't filled with such remorse that he had to do it. Um, but he did it. And then he goes on to say that the gospel isn't a redo, but a resurrection. 
It's not our second chance, but it's the second Adam, Jesus doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. See, Christianity is about resurrection. It's about resurrection living. Christianity ultimately is not about making bad people good. It's not about making sick people better. It's about making dead people alive. And just notice how that, that changed. As we looked in the valley, we saw our state, our, our practice, and our condition. Now we have been raised up, but God has raised us up, and our state has changed. We've gone from being dead to alive. Our hearts have come alive to God, to his presence, to his promises, his glory. Infinite joy has come. We're alive to him where he can daily renew us day by day by day. We're alive to him in this relationship. All that's his is ours, which just gives me images of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You know, the son who his father might as well have been dead to him. All he wanted was um, his inheritance from his father. And so he takes his father's inheritance, he squanders it all, hits rock bottom, and he comes back. And what does the father do? He runs out to him, gives him his best robe, puts the ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, calls for the fattened calf to be slaughtered. Why? Because we're going to celebrate. And why are we going to celebrate? Because my son was dead and now he's alive. All that's the father's is now the son. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. All that's the Father is now ours. He's inviting us into that relationship that we might be renewed by him daily, that we can experience that relationship we're created for, dead to alive. In our practice, we've gone from being enslaved, that Paul says, and makes that very clear in verses one through three, to now we're raised up and seated, no longer having to follow the ways of the world or Satan and even our own sinful desires. But we're seated with Christ over his and our enemies. We no longer need to fear our former captors because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And then lastly, our status, right? We went from condemned to now we are beloved children of God, adopted and alive with him, receiving his favor. And so I want to ask us, what would it look like for these truths, the truth of being made alive to Christ, of being his, what would it look like for these truths that we have been saved by grace alone? How should that grip our heart? If you really believe this tomorrow, what difference would it make in your life? If you really believe this, um, even this morning we became, what would what would it look like? I think there's a lot of different things. I want you to think about that. I just want to highlight two. Is one, it should produce joy. Amazing grace produces joy. Joy is produced when we experience the freedom that God has done something for us that we couldn't do for our, ourselves. And if God would do that for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? And when we see the distance of that gap that Christ has covered for us, that's what produces joy. I love, and it's been said many times in this church before, this quote from Jack Miller when he says, cheer up. You are a lot worse off than you think you are, but cheer up. You are also more known, accepted, and loved than you ever hoped or imagined. Both are true because the gospel is true. Is joy being produced in your life? Or do you want to grow in joy Paul's directing us here. Look at who you were and look what 
Christ has done for you. Look at even who, what he's doing now in your life by his grace. That produces true joy. And what goes along with that is thanks, thanksgiving. So the second sign is thankfulness in our life. And thankfulness is often the opposite of self-congratulation and grumbling. Grace is opposed to both of those. And I love, and again, this quote from a Paul David Tripp devotional. And in the devotional, he talks about how grumbling and thanksgiving uh, are two things that every day we would have many reasons to look at things and grumble. And we have many reasons to give thanksgiving. And they're always pulling out our heart, grumbling and thanksgiving, grumbling and thanksgiving. And he asks, what is the default language of your own heart, of your own mind? Where do you rest? In the grumbling area or the thanksgiving area? And he says um, that if it's the grumbling, it is a dark and discouraging way to live. But if you humbly admit that as a sinner, you deserve nothing but God's wrath, that in acts of outrageous grace, he has turned his face of mercy and kindness towards you and that every good thing in your life is an undeserved blessing, you will find reasons to be grateful everywhere you look. I want to repeat that. That every good thing in your life is an undeserved blessing. You will find reasons to be grateful everywhere you look. Feelings of need and thankfulness rather than entitlement and disappointment will fill your heart. And I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I need to be reminded of this morning. If you ask my wife, Catherine, she would tell you that I'm often my worst critic. I can often focus on what's not right or what needs to be improved. And that grumbling can often be the background noise of my thoughts. And unfortunately, she has to hear that sometimes. But if you also asked her, hey, what's your vision for Hudson? If he were to really grow, like, what would your vision for him be? I think, you can ask her later, but I think she would say that Hudson would believe the very things that he's preaching this morning, that he is alive and raised and empowered with Christ, that he's loved, favored, that God's kindness um, is immeasurable towards him. And it's true, but God, but God has acted on my behalf. This is the theme of my life. And that should bring joy and thanksgiving to my life. And when it does, it does change the posture by which I enter into life and see all of life with thanksgiving, with a desire to obey, obey with great joy. Why? I'm a, I'm a walking miracle. Do you realize that you're a walking miracle? That we've come here because we're walking miracles to receive from the Lord and to praise Him and to know Him. Immeasurable kindness is what God has shown us. And that's the reason, I don't want us to miss, verse 7, that it says that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards us. Unmeasurable, uncountable, grace upon grace, that's God's face towards us, His kindness towards us. And so I want to end by asking, what would it look like for you to live in this world, in your family, in your workplace, at the golf course, at the play date, really believing that you're a walking miracle? What would it look like to live as if we truly were walking miracles? God has used a lot of um, people in my life as reminders of his kindness towards me and his kindness towards others 
as, I, as, as uh, vessels of mercy, as walking miracles. And many, God has used many of you in my life. But as I was kind of meditating and thinking on this passage, I thought of one of my friends from college and just after college, Matt Hamm, who some of you know, and he really introduced me to the doctrines and the thoughts of this passage when I was in college and helped me wrestle through my own depravity, my own state before God, and just how amazing God's sheer grace is uh, to us. But not only did he introduce me to the doctrine, when I looked at his life, and we were roommates for a few years after college, um, when I looked at his life, I was at awe that God is kind because he was a friend who was willing to confess his own sin, that he would often talk about his own need for Jesus. And he really did live a life um, where I would say, man, he is thankful and joyful. And it's really because he really believes Jesus has done something great in his life. Uh, and that impacted me greatly. And so I want to end by sharing, actually, it's a part of a prayer from the prayer book, Valley of Vision. And my friend Matt would often quote this or pray this because it was a, a passage that meant so much to him and should be the cry of our own hearts. When we look at Ephesians 2 and what Paul is telling us that Christ has done, I want to finish fin uh, or leave us with these words. The prayer says, O Lord, I am astonished at the difference between my receivings and my deservings, between the state I am now in and my past gracelessness, between the heaven I am bound for and the hell I have earned. Who made me to differ but you? Who made me to differ but God? Who made you to differ but God? But God. Let's pray. Father, I am astonished at the difference between my receiving and my deserving. And it's all but your grace. But your grace. Lord, may you fill our hearts with joy and thanksgiving even now as we continue to praise you for your grace in our life. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.